I'm obsessed with everything I pick, whatever it is. I don't really question it. Most of the time, my obsessions, I don't know what's happening when they start. I just tug on a thread a little bit and then full on yank on it and then connect it to a bus and drive it out of town. <laughs> the idea of exploring and learning and my mind just exploded at university. Exposed to psychology for the first time, like Psych 101 just changed everything. I was like, wait, this is how we work? This is I know more about myself now than I ever did. And I think that was the productive push to this idea of pulling on a thread that was good. And it was, it was really sports photography is that first passion that turned into something mm -hmm. rather than just a passive interest. I mean, when I was a teenager in high school, I started building the internet and playing with HTML and CSS and thought it was neat that you could make stuff move on a screen and had my own little website for cars that I was building. So I guess I'd, yeah, I've always been obsessed. I totally forgot. I've always been this obsessive, 100%. That's Jody Bailey. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And every week on this show, I sit down with athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running for long-form conversations that will educate you, inspire you, or impact you in some way. My guest this week is Jody Bailey. Jody is one of the top photographers in the running game today, and I've been a big fan of his work for the past couple years. He calls himself a visual ethnographer of running, and his photos and stories have appeared in media outlets such as Tempo Journal, Inner Voice, and Like the Wind magazine, in campaigns for brands like Brooks, Asics, Saucony, and others, and in various other places. We recorded this conversation the morning after the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon, which, in addition to being an awesome event on its own, served as Jody's unofficial four-year anniversary of his introduction to running and photographing the sport. We talked about the spark that ignited his interest in running and desire to document his culture, how he got his start in sports photography, being self-taught as a photographer, web designer, and computer programmer, how curiosity and competitiveness fit into different areas of his life, the importance of community, the current landscape of running photography, and a lot more. I love this conversation, and I have no doubt that you will too, so let's dive right into it with Jody Bailey. about my running, about my photography, about staying with Mario in Atlanta during the U.S. Olympic trials in 2020. Crazy enough, I think we're going to be talking about all of those things. And then some this morning, Jody Bailey. Here we are. Oh. <laughs> um, we are recording this the morning after the U.S. Olympic marathon trials in Atlanta, Georgia. How are you feeling? I'm feeling a little bit worked by the uh, the U.S. Olympic marathon trials in Atlanta, Georgia. That uh, course beat me up a little bit, and I didn't run the race. What'd so, your day look like yesterday? Uh, a little hectic. You, you get up early, you plan the things, you do the things, you get the breakfast in, you go to a shakeout run or two, uh, you get home, grab gear, and then just head back to the, we'll call it chaos. I'm going to go with chaos this, this week, about this weekend. It was It was wild yesterday. I think we need to throw an adjective in front of that, though. It was excited chaos. Oh. It was beautiful chaos. Riveting chaos. 
Yeah, I like that one. I like riveting. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty incredible race, but it was also just the environment. I mean, every single volunteer, I saw, you know, police officers doing burpees with people on the side. Like, everybody was great on course. Uh, Atlanta Track Club just did such an amazing job with USATF to put this event on. What brings a Canadian photographer to the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials? Oh, wow. That's the loaded question. That's the, that's the door opener. I, uh, this is basically my U.S. Olympic Trials and my running photography storytelling career, if you will. I started about four years ago, almost to the week. It was early March when I got introduced to running and started photographing running, which turned into storytelling and chasing runners to Atlanta, Georgia to the 2020 U.S. Olympic trials. So this was more of a celebration of sorts for you in addition to documenting what was going on on the course and just around town here this weekend. Yeah, I think it was more of a celebration than it was documenting our work. I, uh, I didn't, didn't have to work to be here. I just I had to book this trip. I knew I needed to be here. Uh, this was mandatory as far as I was concerned. And sitting here the day after, I absolutely made the correct decision to be here. Uh, this was a celebration. It was amazing. Well, take me back four years. What was the spark that ignited this interest? We may call it an obsession in running and this desire to photograph and document the sport. We can absolutely call it an obsession. It has turned into that. Um, it started with, innocently enough, honestly, it was, it was an, uh, an event with a local run group in Edmonton, Alberta, that was put on with Lululemon to help raise money uh, to put shoes on kids' feet. And I was taking event, doing event photography at the time, taking pictures and mutual acquaintance asked if I could shoot this event with a bunch of runners and two treadmills in a Lululemon store for 24 hours. And I, my eyes lit up and I was in. And when I showed up and stayed up for the full 24 hours, and that was my first introduction to the running community, not running, but just the running community, sure. that sense of it. And I was overwhelmed. Uh, 24 hours later, I had a family and changed me. And that led to this. When that 24-hour event wrapped up, what were the thoughts that were going through your mind at the time? Just how amazing the running community was. I had no idea that four years later, it would still be blowing my mind every event that I go to, how small but overwhelmingly giving, caring, uh, the running community is and supporting. And that's, I mean, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the support of the running community, the runners, brands, groups, crews, everything. And so it was, it was a punch in the face because it was 24 hours, so condensed, so small, and you just saw it over and over and over. And it, it was just the, you up. It was the conversations. You, can, you could not hear just amazing stories from runners about running and what running had done for them. And I knew I just needed to support this group as much as I could, however I could, with my camera, whatever it was. And somebody from Lululemon, evidently, Andrea Rice in Edmonton, she's the maven for Alberta, I believe. She might, the role might have changed by now, but she reached out and said, hey, like we need to document running for Lululemon in Edmonton. We don't really know how to do that. Can you do that? And I, yes, absolutely. And we came up with this weird plan of chasing a run crew around and documenting their runs on my bike. And I had no, I, then I went home and had to figure out how I was going to do it. It was one of those things, say yes and then figure it out later. <laughs> Were you doing any running of your own prior to photographing that event? 
Absolutely not. I had ran 23 times prior. <laughs> in your life? In my life. I had ran 23 times prior to that, and I know that because a friend of mine was uh, working on a project with Nike, and I ended up with a Nike watch a few years earlier when I first moved to Edmonton. And my wife ran at the time, and she was a lifetime marathoner. Um, we met the day after she, quote unquote, retired from her last marathon because she had a bad race in the hottest Chicago year of the year. And next week she went to Niagara and just ran a marathon and said, I'm done. And then the next day we met. So I've always been close to running and I'd gone to a couple of races of hers and photographed her and photographed other runners, but I, didn't, I wasn't exposed to the community. I wasn't exposed to running as we know it. And uh, yeah, so it was, that, it was that exposure to that that led to this, this whole thing. So I started running when I had that Nike watch because I was interested in data. I just I needed to produce the data in order to play with it. Turns out the Nike watch, you couldn't pull any of the data off of it. <laughs> they kept it all locked down. I tried so hard. I found some like off programs that were trying to pull it out and I got some of it. And after 23 runs, I ended up doing, I ran a 50 minute 10K just on a training run. Like it was, you know, it's numbers. So even if you're not a runner, you'll still chase those numbers, those arbitrary numbers of flat numbers that we did. And I ran a 50 minute 10K on a run and I was like, I'm good. I don't really like this. <laughs> <laughs> after the 24 hour Lululemon event, do you remember when? You said to yourself, I'm going to put the shoes on. I'm going to go grab the watch. Maybe you didn't grab a watch. And I'm going to go out the door and start putting some miles in. Or I'm going to seek out people to run with and immerse myself in this community in that way as well. It was so natural and it was never a thought. I had no intention ever of running. I came out of winter. I got pneumonia the, that winter, the year. So I documented running for a year, never ran. I shot this run crew for four months, twice a week, and then this run, and I never ran, and I never ran. And then a month after the assignment ended, I was frustrated and angry, and I didn't understand, ran into one of the runners, and I'm like, well, you're a runner. You, you've been coming out with us three times a week, doing an interval workout early in the morning. You built a routine. You had that release of energy that running gives us, but you never ran. And so... She's like, just keep coming out with us. So I kept going out with the crew. And so I documented right up until it was about a year later, about in, I think March. And I got pneumonia that winter. And I went to go document my crew after I was better. And I, was, I couldn't keep up. I was on a bike and I couldn't keep up. I was gassed. I was out of shape. And so I showed up to November Project thinking like, I don't like running, but I'll do stairs with them and that'll like get me fit. Like it'll be a help get me fit because it was still kind of wintry and the roads weren't great for biking. So it worked out really good. So I went to a November project a couple times and then I had a meeting in Baltimore, a three-hour meeting in Baltimore that turned into an eight-week road trip uh, documenting running and running because I showed up to Brooklyn Running Company in New York. I have a friend who lives in New York. So I went to stay with her for a week, head up to my meeting in Baltimore and just went to Brooklyn Running Company. Uh, talked to a gentleman by the name of Will Kramer and he, we just sort of hit it off. I told him I document runners. What's the you know, run group scene down here? Can I just show up with a camera? Like, who should I reach out to? And he gave me the lay of the land and looked at my stuff. And he's like, yeah, but you got to run. Like, you you got to be a runner. This, you got you to gotta run. And I had some sneakers and he was like, yeah, no, we're, we're going to get you in we'll some shoes. Yeah. Yeah, so he got me in some shoes. I got in some, some Adidas and uh, went and he said, just explore New York. So it was part... 
inspiration from Will Kramer or just like another runner looking me in the eye saying like, you can't document this stuff and understand it without doing it. And exploring New York and I started running in New York, you run in the streets, you play with traffic. I ride a bike in the streets, I play with traffic messenger style. And that's when running for the first time felt natural. As odd as it sounds, most people lose their mind when they go to New York and try to run because it's not for everyone. And it was the first time running was natural for me. I felt at home playing with traffic in the streets of New York City. And I ran, I think, 30 kilometers that week or so, knowing too much too soon is how every runner gets injured. Having documented runners for a year and listened to the stories on the long runs and heard the, you know. You had some intel. Oh, I had some intel. I was cheating when I started running. And so, yeah, it, went, it started with 30 kilometers, 30, 35 kilometers that week in New York. Knew that was a little bit much for the first week and then just slowly, slowly drew into it. And here we are three years almost to the week of my runniversary, as I call it. I'm 9,500 kilometers into my running career and yeah, legs are callous now and I'll spin up an 80 mile week, no problem. And yeah. I love that you know exactly how many kilometers you've put in over the last few years, but having gotten to know you myself, I'm not surprised by that one bit because you are very analytical and a bit of a number cruncher. When you went back to Edmonton, were you hungry to stay with it and seek out the local scene there to be a part of it as a runner? Or were you thinking, you know, I'll just go out on my own and then I'll head out, you know, with the run crews and, and shoot them, but it'll be like two separate things? Well, it was interesting because I started in New York and then that spiraled. Like I ended up going to Toronto and staying with a friend there for a few weeks because her roommate was out of town. And I was, I just, I was at a weird spot. I didn't have, I wasn't working a lot or something. I can't really remember how, but I just had this eight weeks. And so I ended up running for eight weeks on the road in Toronto, went out to Vancouver, connected with Mile to Marathon on that trip with Dylan Wikes and Rob Watson, even before they were fully formed in that group. Those were the early days for them. And so I'd been running a little bit and then I get back to Edmonton and it was exciting because now I could run with my runners. Well, you have a whole new perspective. It was, it was amazing. It changed everything for me and then it became tough. Document or run? Do you like, because that was my job in that world and at home I was a documenter. So some friends at home were a little upset or disappointed. They laughed about it, but I think there was some like hurt there that I didn't run with them until this trip. And so there was a little bit of guilt or something that I had to sort of work through initially. Um, but then I became a runner in Edmonton because up until then I just felt the obligation to continue to document because everybody loves photos of us selves running. Let's not lie. Like we, we do enjoy seeing those photos, especially when they're great photos, you know, from a sports photographer who knows how to capture you in their your best light and in the air and looking great while you run. Uh, people love that. So I felt guilty running instead of shooting. So then, you know, you'd take the camera on the runs and then you get proficient you learn that Fred Gorris, that's all he does is runs around with a camera and photographs while on a run. So then while everyone's doing an easy run, you're doing an interval workout, <laughs> getting up ahead, running off to the side, going up onto a bridge or something. But it was just the idea that you knew somebody else could do it. So then I expend, you know, went from the bike to carrying the camera and I found a rhythm because I knew I didn't, I didn't have a lot of miles. I wasn't allowed a lot of miles each week early on. So I would offset that. And so I'd get more bike workouts in photographing runners. And I knew that was a good cross training. And yeah, so it just, I, I figured out early on how to build that routine into the running, but still be a part of the community, still support the local runners, still support those local run crews, and also be a runner within that community. When did you get your start in photography? 
middle 2000s, 2004, I think is the year. I can't pinpoint it. I was 24 years old, lost, didn't know what I was doing, living in London, Ontario. I drove back to Saskatchewan and for whatever reason, just decided there was a big basketball, high school basketball tournament, um, the uh, Bedford Road Invitational. And I just went to a local camera shop, grabbed a camera and a lens, and did a bit of research on what I should have, showed up to the tournament, said I was a journalist, taking pictures for the paper, they gave me credential. And I you had no assignment. I had no assignment. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I think I did it, looking back now, I know it was because I missed being a part of a team. I'd been an athlete my whole life and here I was in my mid-20s not really productive in society at the time. That'll be the nice way of putting it. And this was a way to be a part of a team. And I knew it was just something. And as soon as I hit that first shutter and I saw those awful photos, I was like, okay, I can get better. And now it was a task to get better as a sports photographer. And went back to London, Ontario and went to the university and did the exact same thing. Just said, yeah, I'm here shooting for the paper and then made a connection with the communications person and the photos were getting better. Every time I shot, I got better. You do that in editing. And it, it became, I became the photographer for the Western Mustangs for those couple of years, did it for free. They allowed me to sell the photos to friends and family. And so I used that to sort of piecemeal food and rent for a couple of years. And then it got to the point where I was a sports photographer there. And the, the industry's kind of a grind. Uh, shooting for Getty, it's kind of an old boys club and getting into it was hard. And I got to that point where I was like, oh, like I need a lot more expensive gear and I'm not making any kind of money off of this. So like mm -hmm. this, this isn't sustainable. And so then sort of retired from sports photography late in 2000s. Were you entirely self-taught? 100%. The internet. There's forum, Fred Miranda forums, Canon photography forums. There was sports, little sports sections in the forums and you just sat in there all day and I just poured through it. And it, I'm obsessed with everything I pick. Whatever it is, I don't really question it. Most of the time, my obsessions, I don't know what's happening when they start. I just, you know, tug on a thread a little bit and then full on yank on it and then connect it to a bus and drive it out of town. <laughs> Have you always had an obsessive personality? I think so. Again, early on in my life, it wasn't productive. I think it wasn't until it was basically the sports photography, which led to, I, I got into computer overclocking and I ended up going to university because I was on campus all the time, talking to people, found out about the, a program at, at Western called Media Information and Technoculture, just spoke to me and seemed like, hey, that's, that's, what, that's you, this is for you, and got into academia. And I thought for a while I was gonna be in academia for the rest of my life. Like I was 27 years old going to university, all my TAs and profs were the same age as me. I was older than most of my TAs. And I was sitting in a classroom of 17, kids, 17 year old kids and I was in love with it. The idea of exploring and learning and my mind just exploded at university. Exposed to psychology for the first time, like Psych 101 just changed everything. I was like, wait. This is how we work. This is, I know more about myself now than I ever did. And I think that was the productive push 
to this idea of pulling on a thread that was good. And it was, it was really sports photography is that first passion that turned into something mm -hmm. rather than just a passive interest. I mean, when I was a teenager in high school, I started building the internet and playing with HTML and CSS and thought it was neat that you could make stuff move on a screen and had my own little website for cars that I was building. So I guess I'd, yeah, I've always been obsessed. I totally forgot. I've always been this obsessive, 100%. If you don't mind talking about it, what were some of your early obsessions as a young kid or as teenager? A, as a young kid, I don't really remember a lot. My dad, I was talking to my dad recently and he was telling me how I just solved problems. Like I had a loan system with them when I was four or five years old. Like I understood how, how a loan worked. You got money, you had to pay a little bit of interest on it if you got it in advance, but you could only get so much, enough that you could pay back without getting in trouble, aka credit. And they, they worked that. I would do anything around the neighborhood. I would just hustle to make money to buy wrestlers. And I've always been that way. Like my dad said, when you learn to ride a bike, you did not want training wheels. You were not starting with training wheels. You were just going to ride a bike. And we went out and like 12 hours later, I was riding a bike and it got dark. And so then I was riding it in the basement and I was, you know, young kid, four or five, whatever it was. But like, I've always been like that. I just didn't know how to tap it productively. And looking back, it's really easy to see that as a young kid, like I could have done some really cool and exceptional things if I knew how to like, or if somebody saw that ability and was able to direct it or figure out how to direct it productively. And so that was the the sort of identification later on was like, okay, you, you kind of, this is your personality. How do you work with this to do good things? But it took you a while to figure that out. A long time. It was the community in London, Ontario that just sort of did that. Um, Sean Adamson was a big part of that for me. Sean Adamson and, and, and Monique, I just got exposed to people doing good things for other people. And that was new to me. It, it sounds weird, but that was a little bit new to me. And I was like, oh, I can just, offer to help somebody, a community event, and takes photos. And so I, I used the camera to, to do that um, and to just support. And that's, that's when you realize like, oh, wow, these threads that I pull on, I can turn them into stuff. I can do things with them that help others and help myself and help the community that I live in. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode. They're offering a phenomenal deal to Morning Shakeout listeners right now. Use the promo code SHAKEOUT, all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com and you'll save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Some restrictions do apply, but that should cover you for most products on their website. I've been running in the Fresh Foam 1080 V10 for the past several weeks, and it's quickly become one of the workhorses in my shoe stable. It provides the right blend of cushioning and responsiveness to make my daily miles and long runs comfortable and enjoyable. I've also been alternating between a couple different New Balance tops of late that are worth checking out. On colder days, my go-to has been the NB Heat Quarter Zip. It's lightweight, but keeps me warm when it's under 40 degrees Fahrenheit. There's there's a handy little zip pocket on the chest that I like to throw my house key in, and it's one of my favorite design elements about the piece. On warmer days, when I get out later in the morning or mid-afternoon, the Impact Run short sleeve has been my shirt of choice. It's super light with sharp, solid colorways and subtle design elements. It also fits great, not too tight, not too loose, and will be a staple in my wardrobe for a long time to come. Remember, use the code SHAKEOUT. That's all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com and you'll save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. 
My thanks to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Now let's get back to the show. What were some of the unproductive obsessions that you had? Without going into too much detail, just hanging out with the wrong crowd, as your parents would say. Mm-hmm. Um, got into some trouble a few times as a kid. Um, I mean, we would do things at night. We were just free at night and doing things that we shouldn't have been into. I used um, my parents' leeway a little too loosely. We got in trouble one time with the police. We did something stupid and we had to go to mediation with the people that the house that we, we were messing with. And that sort of snapped me out of that. I think a little bit to, to go, I was close to going really to the wrong, to the wrong side of the, the world. And that snapped me out of that. I remember as a teenager in high school and ended up just hanging out with different people. I, I, I think I did that on my own. I self-identified like, hey, you got to hang out with better people, different people, and got into sports, played volleyball in high school and just sort of like focused on that. Thought I was going to be a professional volleyball player. I'm five, six. <laughs> it never happened. And back then there was no libero. Uh, so got to a really high level as a teenager, as an athlete in volleyball and showed up to like a national tryout. And they're like, yeah, you're, you're not six one, so you need to leave. Um, and I was like, but I can jump like 40 inches. Like, it doesn't matter. That takes time. You need to be tall. Uh, so that was the end of sports. And that's what led to the sports photography was I think the, the loss of the team and the group and the, the dedicating yourself to something that was productive right? Sport is so productive for us. And I think I just missed that. And that's where the sports photography came in. So there was just a, you know, a few year gap there between high school and that. How did you fill that gap between high school and when you picked up that first camera and started shooting? Just trying to survive, you know, early twenties, living in a new city. I moved to London, Ontario from the prairies. That was my first time kind of out East living on my own away from like, I moved out with a girlfriend at the time her family was moving. I was like, yeah, let's go. I just knew I needed to get out of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where I grew up. And so it was just trying to like figure out who I was in London, Ontario, a new city, new town, didn't really know. And so you're working, working in call centers. That's a big thing out there. But I got into computers. I got into overclocking and I worked at a local computer store and I got into this competitive game of, you know, making computers run faster to run a benchmark and competing online with others. And that was the start of it. That was that really good productive, finally something productive in Ontario that I just poured myself into. And again, obsessed over it, got a job at a computer store to facilitate it, started writing tech articles, reviewing computer hardware for publications and for brands. And that turned into then getting a job at an electronics manufacturer to better understand electronic engineering and soldering to facilitate the tools to be able to overclock. So again, like built an entire life around this, this, uh, this task or this, this thing that we did as, as overclockers became top 10 ranked in the world traveled a little bit, flown to LA a few times and this and that. For if I can cut you off, can you explain what overclocking is? Overclocking, the simplest explanation is it's drag racing computers. Effectively, computers run at a clock speed and so we would turn them up above their stated clock speed that they were sold at in order to get more performance out of them. I was an optimist. I'm, I'm still an optimist. I, I optimize everything I do in that sense. Like My whole life is very very simple, but very optimized. And so overclocking was perfect for me. It was just tiny little adjustments here and there, scientific process kicked in, and that's how you got better at it. And so it was just a matter of like 
turning a computer up, adding voltage, making it run faster, but then you got to cool it. So then I had to learn about cooling and it got to the point of going through 130 liters of liquid nitrogen in a 48 hour session of overclocking on the weekend. And you would super cool the computer down to a minus 197 degrees and run it faster and compete in benchmarks that you would post online into forums. And then there was the hardware bot came out of that. So there was a whole standings and then that, and it was nationally organized. So I was Canada's best for better part of a decade. I think I'm still ranked probably seventh or eighth. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't overclocked in decades. Uh, it's been like at least 15 years. And was that all entirely self-taught too? hundred percent self-taught again, the internet, just figuring it out, but it was, everything's been competitive. That was again, just a competitive outlet. I think photography turned into a competitive outlet just with myself getting better. Um, but yeah, that was all self-taught and then you get a community. So I've been exposed to communities and mm -hmm. I think that's what I saw in the running community was the overclocking community. It's really small. There's, we're just a bunch of nerds, <laughs> bunch of geeks, computer geeks being geeks. And we had that community. I'd end up in Michigan and we have these overclocking events and we'd go down to Vince's place and, you know, there's 15 of us and we just have a weekend of being, doing what we do and love and, and having that sense of community. And that's, I think, what kept you in overclocking. I always thought it was the, the nuts and bolts of it and the competition. But looking back now, it was because I had a community and I'd moved at weird points in my life you know, right at grade one, right at grade six or seven. So, I mean, I never had like a linear path. I never had a lifetime friend. I moved before elementary school, moved right after elementary school, moved right after high school. And so this was sort of like my exposure to a really tight knit group that supported each other. And it, it all makes sense now. But at the time I was just, I was just doing something I, I enjoyed that m made my mind feel comfortable and put it at ease because it had an outlet to work. Well, this is fascinating because there are a lot of themes that are emerging here, which are making a lot more sense to me now that I've gotten to know you over the last few years. But one we haven't talked about that has kind of been lingering around all of this is curiosity. All of these things that you've thrown yourself into obsessively had started with a curious spark. Do you look back as... <clears throat> can you look back as a kid and identify when some of that started to happen for the first time? Yeah, like, I mean, I'm literally doing that as I went through, as we're going through this, this conversation because I'm, a lot of this stuff is sort of coming out of my mouth for the first time maybe, some of it to this detail. And so again, as a kid, I really, I had an interesting youth. Like I don't really remember a lot. Like I don't remember, like we moved to Arborfield, Saskatchewan, small remote community, Northern Saskatchewan, 500 people. All you do is play hockey. Like that's it. Winter, summer, there's an arena, there's a curling rink. Mm -hmm. And if you're not playing hockey in the arena, you're playing hockey in the street. And if you're not playing hockey in the street, you're playing hockey at the school. And so I never really, like I don't really remember the curiosity as a, you know, in elementary school or even into high school that much. I think I was really struggling with just trying to fit or find my group or, you know, become a, become who I was. I went to a high school. I was, I think a little more mature or a little more comfortable with who I was. And so that was a little bit weird because everybody was threatened by that in high school. And so I maybe pushed that a little bit, use that to my advantage. I went to a high school outside of where I lived. I lived on the bad area of town, went to a, a rich kid high school, as they said. And so I sort of used that a little bit, but I don't remember the curiosity being there 
or I was I was interesting girls and for and like I had a couple of friends and we just loved hanging out and you know we played we played volleyball and then we'd go bowling and we just we got into drinking a little bit and like that you know like that was sort of washed away any curiosity because then it was just trying to be cool sort of got caught up in that a little bit I think and so the curiosity I don't really like I don't have the roots, but then, like I said, talking to my dad, he's like, it's obvious. I was always curious. I was always just inquisitive and always curious about something. But It's obvious looking back. Looking back, it's obvious as day. And I mean, like I said, into the 20s, I got into building cars as a late teenager. And like I traveled, I lived in Huntington Beach on the beach for a month while I was buying Volkswagens that were rust-free and driving them up and rebuilding them in Vancouver. So, I mean, that all happened in high school. But I think the cars was kind of the first one because that was, those were cool, 16, 17 year olds. We, we'd buy, like I bought a 1985 Volkswagen Scirocco. And like that was, that was my first obsessive passion that I can really remember. Like, oh, the internet was around. I could look up, I bought a Bentley manual and I literally like bought this car, brought it home, tore it apart and rebuilt it part by part. My, my sister's boyfriend at the time lived with us. Um, they're now married and, and whatnot, but he lived with us and he was a mechanic. And so I knew I had a safety net if I ever got in trouble, but I didn't even ask him. I never asked him for help. I wanted to figure it out. The way that I'd done it was just gone with the manual and done it and then like re- debriefed with him after. And he'd be like, yeah, don't do it like that. <laughs> and so I learned a lot, but the, the curiosity was on my own. I, I didn't reach out to people. And so I think that's, you know, the common thread that I said, the internet provided this unlimited access to information. And once I had that, my brain was just like, as soon as a thread, and I never knew what those threads were at the time. You don't know until later, but clearly that's, that's what it was, was the access to information and understanding that anything you wanted to know, you could find out to like the nth degree. And that changed everything, I think. To spin the curiosity bit another way, have you always been interested in how things work? Can you think back to a time as a kid? I know you said you don't remember a whole lot from your younger days. Even if you didn't pursue, okay, this is how this works, but do you remember being curious about like, huh, I wonder how like that plane flies or how that car moves forward or whatever it might've been? This is really interesting because as we talk, like I'm thinking of these things, I was into drawing a little bit. I was really curious or like wanted to know how drawing happened, how you drew. So I remember drawing Garfield now. It was Garfield comics and I got pretty proficient at it. And I think my teacher at the time thought I was tracing or something. But I think those were like hints of this curious nature because I was just like, how do you, how do you use this pencil or pen to make these things, like these images? And so that was that was the curiosity there bubbling up. But again, that sounds just like what you said at the beginning of this conversation about getting into building the internet and making things move on a screen. Yeah, and it was making things, creating things. So I'm, I have to create. And that's, that's, now that's the thread. That's the common thread through my whole life. I think curiosity has led to creation. I have to produce. I've struggled with producing digital at times and need to go to physical things. And I think that's part of the community in running is why I, I love that part of it is because you're building something. You can see the tangible results when you go from a, a track group of seven people one Tuesday morning at 5.30 because somebody puts their hand up and says, hey, I'm going to do a track workout. Who wants to join me? And then a few months later, you taking photos of that group, understanding like, hey, that's somebody that's passionate about something. I want to support them. And so then I go and take photos and then that group built to like 
30. And now, I mean, this summer, we're going to have 40 or 50 people on the track on Tuesday mornings at 5.30. And watching that build, and I think that's the, the productive side of it. I always had to create. And now it's like a little existential. It's not a physical thing, but it's this idea. And now I'm creating community and I'm helping other people create community. I'm more of a supporter role in that. I don't often lead much in my life. Um, but I will support anybody I see passionate about something that has that, that, that drive. And so then I get curious about their drive, I think, a little bit and then tap into that and then just let you know, the creation need to take over to produce something to help them build something. Let's take that a little bit further. One of the things that I love and appreciate about your work is you're not just taking amazing photos. From the time that I first became exposed to your photography, what really stood out to me is the stories behind the photos. And whether it's a series of photos that you post to Instagram and you're piecing those together, or it's a longer piece that you've done for Tempo Journal or some other outlet, you are really into the stories behind the photos. So someone can look at it and maybe be inspired, but then they can dig deeper through what you're writing uh, down. When did your interest in story as an element come into the picture? I think it's always been there since taking pictures because a single frame tells a story. I think that's always sort of been there. I don't ever remember telling... That's a lie. I, I think on my website I even say I've been telling stories since I could talk and will joke and... I think that's what it, it is true. I've always been a storyteller, um, but the camera kind of opened that up. Like you can tell a story with a single frame and sports photography is really precise. You have to be really good to be able to tell an entire story with a single frame. And that's all you get in a newspaper article most of the time. You know, you get one photo and then a bunch of words, but that photo has to do 90% of sure. the, the setup for the words. And then only if you're interested in the photo, like that has to pull the reader in to get them to read the words. And so the story had always been there, again, didn't know it. I was just trying to be technically proficient. And that led to like, oh, that leads to better storytelling photos when you get low and the, the athlete then appears bigger in isolation so that they look, then you're focused on their eyes and the micro expressions on their face rather than, you know, the uninteresting stuff, which is the game and the other athletes. It's about the people in sports photography and they have, you have to show that emotion. So you need ball, peak action and eyes. Like you need, an, you need eyes in it. And so I think that's where the storytelling came from. And then when you transfer that to running and that first, you know, that 24 hour treadmill challenge, you just, you were surrounded by stories. All you heard was running stories. And I was like, these are all amazing. Like you're hearing about families who spend more time now together because they get into fitness and they're eating healthier. And then it's led to just a better family dynamic for people. And you're like, just because of running? Like, yeah, I need to tell this story so that somebody else can see it. So it wasn't was until you got thrown into it that you realized that because as you said, your girlfriend was always running and you were taking photos of her, but you weren't really looking at the stories behind it. You were just saying, oh, here are some nice photos of runners. You weren't aware really of you know, how people had got to where they were. Yeah, my understanding of running, I mean, she grew up on a farm in, in northern Saskatchewan and her parents would literally drop her 10 kilometers away from home and she'd run in a straight line on rural roads back home and that's how she ran. Um, there wasn't, she was, you know, 23 kilometers from town. Uh, they had three kids, they ran a farm. Team sports was not an option because it meant driving and until you were 
could drive. The parents had to do that and they didn't have time. So for her, running was isolated. So that's my introduction to running was a very isolated sport. You went and ran. So when I shot her races, I would shoot other runners, but I just thought they were the Everyone same. Everyone was in that same isolated side. Everyone ran by themselves. When you sure. when you're looking, you see runners, I think back, I never saw groups. I never saw crews or like group runs. You would only ever see like one or two people running ever. And so it just, that's what running was to me. It was isolated. And then I got into this room of runners and realized it was not. I think that's super interesting because running, it's definitely changing now for a number of reasons. But for the longest time, it was about the loneliness of the long distance runner. And I think from the outside looking in as you were, that was a lot of people's perception of it. Everyone is just doing this thing on their own. There was no community. And the only time folks gathered was to race and the first person to the finish line would win. And I could see why to the uneducated observer, that's not really that interesting. It's not that interesting. It, it was, you know, they smiled and people would wave for the camera and they looked like they were having fun, but I didn't know why they were there. I didn't know how much time they put into it. I didn't know how, how dedicated you had to be, how many choices you had to make in life to create this running world that you live in. And then once you were exposed to it, and I also didn't see what running did for you. I didn't, me and Allison, we never really talked about what running did for her. I just knew it was a thing she needed to do, that she wanted to do, and we would go to races. And so I just wanted to support her in that. And I could take pictures. So yeah, like I'd take pictures, but I didn't really, I didn't pull on the thread. I don't know why it was. I don't know if I didn't want to cross into her thing. I had my things and mm -hmm. running was her thing. And I, we were very independent and like we had a really good dynamic when, when we got together. We had our own independent things but like we were a great cohesive unit but individually all our friends were like you guys are so amazing because you can you have separate lives and so I think maybe that was part of it I didn't want to step on her toes perhaps and so I didn't really pull on the thread of running until I, I could not see it again in that that 24 hour treadmill challenge where you're just immersed in it and every single conversation is just mind-blowing and you're like wait Every single one of you who runs, runs for a reason. And that reason is amazing. Usually there's a, like an incredible story behind it of what they started or how they started or why. And I mean, I'm no different. We're just talking about my story. But that every runner has this story that they, if you pull on the thread, you can find. Lots of the times I'll talk to runners and they don't know why they run. And then you talk to them and like have a conversation like this and you're uncovering things. And then they leave that conversation, that interview, and they're like, wow, like I know more about my running now than I ever did. I see where my experiences come from and where that influence is from. And so once you see that happen once, you're like, wait, I can do that for one person. How many other people can I do that for? Or, or help facilitate them coming to that understanding of what running is for them or what it can mean to them. And that's what drives you now. That's what drives me now is... I don't, I don't force running on anybody. I'm clearly the, the perfect example of running needs to be on your terms. You have to find it for your reasons. Um, if you force it, it's not fun. I mean, we all know that it's, it's sometimes not fun when you are forcing brutal sport. it. It's a brutal sport. It's hard. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of dedication. And I mean, it's, it's, it's something different, but you see the rewards. We do it for a reason. We continue to get up at 530 in the morning for track workouts and putting in 60 miles or 30 miles or 10 miles a week. And we see what it does for us. And we think it's just an, an, uh, a very 
superficial, like, oh, it makes me, my mind better and it's like meditative or whatever, but I think it's even beyond that. It's this idea of putting like small little inputs, a bunch of deliberate inputs that lead to large outputs and running is so straightforward that way. You just have to get up and do it every day. And if you do, if you run every single day, you get better. There's just, you know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. I mean, you can do too much too soon and get injured and then you can't run, but that still goes back to it. If you can run every single day... Well, just be consistent with it. Yeah, that's all running. And we see that now, like, we're, you know, the Des Linden story of winning Boston after years and years, and now we're seeing all these 40-year-old runners, and I mean, it came out yesterday. Like, we've got, we've got the oldest... American Olympian now going to the Olympics in Abdi and like it's just decades and decades compound interest on now those small deliberate inputs that lead to large outputs these huge race outputs and once you sort of see that pattern you're like wait that translates to everything else I've been successful at life you just have to start you just have to do it you're not good when you start anything no runner starts good. That's a lie. Some runners do. But like that's a genetic thing. And they, but you still have to like foster that. And you still have to tap into that. And you still have to be consistent regardless of how much talent you have. But that's most things. That's um, everything. There are people who take naturally to photography, for example. And as you just described in your own story, those first few photos that you took were crap. <laughs> but you stayed with it. And they got better. And here you are doing it for a living. And I think anyone listening to this, whether it's running or what they're doing in their career or some hobby that they picked up or another sport, whatever, can relate to that. And it's that initial spark of excitement, committing to it, committing to it consistently, and you're going to see improvement. We're not all going to be Olympians, but you can all get better. We can all get better. And again, that's like photography is easy. Now with digital cameras, because you can just take thousands of frames. And if every frame is better, just take more frames. Just shoot more. Go shoot, 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 shoot some more. Then come home and look and edit. And I think running's that same way where you don't, don't really know how good you are or how much it means to you or how good you could be, but you just have to do it and keep doing it. And I keep seeing those stories over and over and we're just seeing it so much, I think, in women's distance running. I think that's the biggest thing is just a lot of women stuck with it after college and now we're sort of seeing the byproduct of that like we talk about it a lot in the u.s women's running is just so so profound and i mean every canadian women's record from the track to the road is basically being broken in the last two years because we're just seeing this like dedication and this like just stick with it and it pays off like tasha wodak in canada like you know, she is not your typical aged runner and she's in the best shape of her life and she's performing better than she ever has. And it's just compound interest on decades of that input. You're Canadian. You got your start in running in Canada since you've spent a lot of time in the States, weeks at a time. Described your experience in New York. You're at this event. We've seen each other at numerous other events over the last few years. I'd love to get your take on the differences between running culture in Canada and in the United States, if there are any. I haven't spent much time in Canada, so I don't know. Fair. 
I I haven't really thought of it that way because again, it's the running, right? So I don't really think of it as a Canada and a U.S. thing, but I do spend time there. Do it's, you notice cultural differences? Though? There's cultural differences, but it's not a Canada U.S. It's just the location, like mm-hmm. anywhere in the states. You go from the West Coast to the East Coast, and it's it can different. be within the same city. Sure, it doesn't even have to. It's like we talk about New York, and like you've got different run groups in different areas for different reasons, and I think that's a byproduct potentially of geographic location and where you are and who you are. So those are the differences I see. I don't know if there's any generalities. I'd have to really think about that. In Canada, we don't have many people. That's the biggest thing. In in America, there's just so many more people. So I think everything's a little bit more developed, like this culture that we talk about in running. I think that's just evolved a little bit more. A lot of it comes out of New York, like so much in in our world really comes from New York, but that's just because there's so many people. And so that... And a diverse population. And that diverse population and those people being so close to each other and commingling ideas and mixing. And so we have this beautiful melting pot in New York of just ideas and energies. And so things come out of that. That's how humans evolve. And, and I think how culture evolves is simply curious humans doing things they're passionate about and other people seeing it. And when there's millions of people able to see it, 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 will, it will grow easier. And so in Canada, I just don't think it's as developed simply because of the number of people. We don't, hockey is huge in, in you know, when I said I grew up playing hockey, nobody grows up running in Canada per se. That might be different on the West Coast, but in Northern Saskatchewan, like running wasn't a thing. We did it, but it was always to facilitate being better at hockey or volleyball or something else. Well, I think that's the case here in the U.S. Um, it's changed a lot in recent years as running's popularity has exploded, but here it's all about baseball, basketball, even hockey's more popular than than running here. So I think there's some similarities there, but you make an interesting point about just the sheer numbers of people here versus Canada and a lot of other places in the world because yesterday was a good example. U.S. Olympic trials in Atlanta, thousands upon thousands of people lining the course to watch this thing go down. There's 700 runners participating in it, and that's really rare and unique. That doesn't happen in Canada. It doesn't happen in most countries. It doesn't happen in most countries. It doesn't happen most of the time in America. It was it was amazing yesterday. Like there was 10 deep at intersection. As a, as a photographer, like I ended up in a tree with another photographer because there was too many people at our spot because we had no access to anything. You couldn't move yesterday. And that was unbelievable. Like it was Un, we never expected that. And there was runners that I've been talking to that said like the whole course had people. It was like a Boston or a New York City marathon experience. It really had that feeling to it. It was amazing. And I don't think many of us were expecting that. Not that we, I thought negatively of Atlanta, but there was also so much else going on in the area. Like in the city, there was a car show and I think like a motocross or something like that. And so it just seemed like, yeah, there's this thing happening and you know, there's going to be a marathon tomorrow. So there'll be a lot of runners in town. So yeah, there'll be some crowds. But I didn't expect in in my lifetime that it was going to be like that. And I mean, we were caught off guard a little bit as us out there documenting. Like, we had to really change plans quickly once it became apparent that you were not going to be able to move as well. And then when you get close to the start finish line to get back into it or to leave it, it was it was way more difficult than I thought. So I was really glad that I was as familiar with Atlanta. I spent a little bit of time here after the New York City Marathon just to make sure I was comfortable here. And I think that paid off a lot. And just our running around town beforehand and knowing the course really paid off because there was way more people than I expected. And the support there, like I said, it was 10 deep at a few intersections. And like you could not move in that. You had to like, 
go through parking lots and almost through lobbies of buildings. Like we were using the hotel walkway to get around because that was the only way you could get around. Roads closed and then this, this mass of people. So yeah, it was, it was really in, intense. One more quick break to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Atlanta Track Club and the AJC Peachtree Road Race. Hey, I know it's only March, but you need to make your 4th of July plans right now because both member and lottery registration for the AJC Peachtree Road Race is open right now and closes on March 31st. The Peachtree Road Race is one of America's iconic road races, and it's the largest road race in the country and the biggest 10K in the world. You have to experience it for yourself. This year, July 4th falls on a Saturday, so it's the perfect opportunity to grab friends and family and make a weekend trip out of it. Lottery registration is open now until March 31st, and all registrants will be informed on April 2nd via email whether or not they were selected. Enter as an individual or part of a team. The lottery is free to enter, and you are only charged if you get into the race. Learn more and register today at ajc.com slash peachtree. That's ajc.com slash peachtree. My thanks to the Atlanta Track Club and the AJC Peachtree Road Race for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Do you find the excitement for the sport of competitive running in the United States to be on a different level than Canada and other places that you've been? I do, but I'm also, like you said, I spend a lot of time in the U.S. Um, and a, a lot of time with runners and they're a little bit more invested potentially, but that's not to say that there isn't in Canada, you know, we want to have viewing parties of races, the local run shop, the tech shop in, in Edmonton, I, I believe they had a viewing party of the U.S. trials. So in Canada, we were watching the U.S. trials in the same baited, anticipated breath that everybody in America was, and they're not Canadian athletes. We don't have a trials per se because we just, we'll have three people, if we're lucky, that go under the Olympic standard in Canada. So we don't need a trials. We don't need to put 700 people on a line to find out who's best. And so I think it's interesting that you say that, but I don't think we, you know, like running isn't a highly produced, documented, it's not on mainstream TV. I mean, it was yesterday, but that's kind of it. Even like the New York City Marathon, it's still local television, you can watch it, but you kind of kind of work for it a little bit or you have to pay NBC Sports Gold memberships and these other memberships. And in Canada, it's even less because our media is less and the runners are less. So in order to like be that obsessed about it, you really have to put more effort into it. It's not as available to you, if you will. So those people are there. I just don't think they're as obvious and there's not as many of them so you don't see it. You have to really look for it. And I've seen it. I know those pockets because I know all the runners and all the run crews and like I said, the local shop. So I know it's there, that interest's there. It's just not as developed because the volume of people. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you could extrapolate that to other places around the world, not to make it all US-centric, but we are a very big country with a lot of people and it's generating a lot of excitement around the sport. But that excitement is, is global. And I don't think it's necessarily American excitement because Americans here get just as excited for what's happening in Canada, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in, in Africa. And it's this global community of runners that are creating excitement for one another. And I think, however, that's happening. It's a good thing for the sport, the health of it, the excitement around it, getting more people into it and interested. So uh, that that's where I was coming from with that that question. Um, but as you answered it, it all started to make a little more sense to me. 
And it is. It's you know that's that's what I see too. I see people excited for it. There's just not as many, and you have to you have to know where to look. I think a little bit more. Not that it's obvious even in America. You still have to look a little bit, and you still have to be a bit curious, and you still have to like you know pull on a bit of thread and go to a run group, and then you get exposed to it, and then oh yeah, you can do all these things, and there's all these different run groups. But it's not obvious unless you're looking for it. There's no. You know, it's changing now, I guess, with you go to New York City and you see posters of your friends for New Balance or whatever during the marathon. And so it's pretty obvious there. But that's just, it's like marketing. So it's it doesn't come across to the storytelling that I saw, you know, those early races that I watched with my wife. She, it wasn't, it felt like marketing. I didn't know the stories. I didn't see the stories. I didn't understand what running can do for you and what it facilitates in life and facilitates in your ability to grow as a human and, and to, you know, push yourself. And it's just, it's endless. We can talk all day about what running does for you, but I think it's, it's just not as, as clear cut, not as obvious. And, and I mean, that's again, going back to like why I do this is because I just know I have the ability to help share those stories and get them exposed to other people because you never know what somebody needs at any time. Like you have no idea what those like little conversations can be. And it's these ripples. And that's what keeps coming up and running is do good and be a good person and support those in running because you have no idea who you're going to inspire or what you're going to spark in somebody. And at what age? I didn't start running until I was 37. And I'm a very accomplished runner now at this point, three years later, I will say that. But like, for me to think that I could have got to the mileage and to the, the paces that I run now and to like how my body has responded to it at that age was, I never thought I, that was possible because you thought you had to do it in high school or elementary school and go to college. But that's not true. You can just run anytime. You can start whenever you want. Well, the lesson there is it's never too late to start. It's never too late. And it's never too late not to, just not to start, but to, it's never too late to become a big fact part of your life and to like enhance your life. You're never too old to to evolve and to make yourself a better human being or to, to just, you know, make yourself more interesting to yourself and to the world and to support the people around you, that can happen at any time. And I, you know, we've talked about how I didn't really know how curious I was. I didn't really understand these until, you know, it had, I had to in my mid twenties and thirties when I was at a point where I could focus on more than just base essentials, needing to eat and find it and like pay rent and those sorts of things that only happened once those were sort of covered and I was able to like allow my mind to explore and find those things and so it makes total sense that running doesn't come until later in life because it takes time and it takes a, a certain amount of freedom to be able to run a lot of miles a week and to do the work that's necessary to be able to run a lot of miles a week and so I think it, it makes perfect sense that running doesn't show up into people's lives until later so I just think it's something that you just shouldn't be afraid of because we're I don't know why if we're taught or what it is that we think that you have to have done something before to be good at it later but no, you can start anything tomorrow and you're not going to be good at it. But a week from tomorrow, you're going to be better. And a month from tomorrow, you're going to be better. And a year from tomorrow, you're going to be extremely better, regardless of what it is. And I think running is just the most obvious thing because you feel it. Well, you've got to play the long game. Yeah. And I think there are too many people in running, but other aspects of life as well, who want that quick fix or that quick hit or quick bit of success because they seemingly see someone else have it in whatever it is, but whether it's running, whether it's a professional pursuit, some other hobby, you got to play the long game. And you can't, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but 
you can't have this big end goal in mind. Once I get here, I'm going to be done with it. The key to success is embracing it as a lifestyle. And as you said, having it be a big part of your life because that's what's going to continue to fuel you for the long run. No and I think that's, that's why I'm, I'm successful as a runner. I have been for three years because I love the process and it's process focused. I don't focus on race goals. I've seen it. I've listened to too many runners obsessed with a race. They, you know, you get, you register for a race and then you get a little niggle in your knee or something. And well, I've got to do this race. So I got to keep training. You run through it and then you get injured. And that's that like quick fix sort of thing. You have to think long-term. You constantly have to think long goals. And when I started running, I did, I went out basically there's, I think it's about eight, 10 years is sort of the number that you keep hearing people in podcasts and reading about, like, don't think eight days, eight months, but think eight years, Years, right? Like think of that like decade long process. And if you're focused on the goal, that's too long, like a decade. So you put those like longer term goals out, but you have to be willing to be flexible on that. And I think that just even gets smaller down to the year, looking at your your year over year goals. People get so obsessed with the calendar of the year as runners. They like, skip but, steps. But like it's like, but it's not about one year block. It's about the year before and the year before and the year before. And then the multiple years after. They've like, got you to build have, upon one another. You, you have to think bigger term than even right. just a single year cycle. And that's why the Olympic cycle is really interesting. And the timing on all of this for me was interesting because it's four years in the making that I've been literally doing this. And here I was at the, the Olympic trial which is a four-year cycle. And I had no, I, I could have never put that goal out there four years ago when I started. But a couple of years ago, absolutely. I was like, yeah, this is now my target. And I didn't know how I was going to end up here or what that was going to look like. But I was like, okay, so that's sort of the target. What do I have to start doing now every day to create that possibility at that point? And that's what running has really taught me. I kind of knew it before. We've talked about my passions and obsessions, but for the most part, like running is just like locked in. And now I'm excited. Like I just turned 40 this year and I'm excited for the next 40 because I didn't have this tool set at the start of this last 40. And now I've got this incredible toolbox that will allow me to be successful in everything. And it's not just about running. It'll be successful in everything that I do because I trust the process. And if you don't enjoy the process, what are you doing it for? That's my question is if it's just for the end goals, I think you're going to have a lot more trouble than if you embrace the process and understand that the the journey is the goal. And I know it sounds hokey and that's pretty cliche, but it's so obvious. But that's what we're celebrating here. That's what running has given you. Yeah, absolutely. It's given me clarity on that. Like I always sort of circled the drain on it a little bit and I've been within, you know, arm's length of that idea. But running has like very clarified that for me that really it isn't, it is about the journey. We're not complete. You know, as a kid, you think, oh, I can't wait till I'm an adult. Can't wait till I'm an adult. Then everything will be easy. I'll understand everything. It'll all make sense. I'll know what I'm supposed to be doing. Like in high school, everything's just terrible. It's a terrible time. And like, oh, I can't wait till I'm out of here. I can't wait till I'm an adult. I'm 40 and I'm still waiting to be an adult. I'm still waiting to figure it all out. And when it, there's no, but that's because it isn't. It isn't about the goals. It isn't about the end game. You need goals to point you in a direction, but you need to enjoy the process and focus on that. And if you bury yourself in the process, you'll get way more out of it too. But you'll also have a better time doing it, I think, because you'll get frustrated when the goals don't happen exactly as you plan. And you run that race and you're like, oh, I could have done this and I could have done Every race we've ever ran, everybody could be faster. 
but like that's only because it's we don't you know it's that's false it's not true (laughs) (laughs) so many more things that i want to talk about but we have to wrap this up in the next few minutes so couple things I want to hit on before we do. Circling back to your trajectory as a running photographer these last few years, when was that moment after the 24-hour event at Lululemon when you decided that you wanted to document runners and share their stories with a wider audience, whether it was through your own channels or trying to pitch those stories out to bigger publications? I think it was, I think it happened almost immediately on that eight week road trip where I ended up in Vancouver and Toronto and went to the Boston Marathon that year. I think it happened even that early in that idea that I just saw how important it was to talk about it because I, I was, it was, it had been there the whole time in front of me and I didn't know it was there, right? This whole community. And I think it was almost immediate. It was like, I need to tell people about this or I need to share about that. And so I started making choices immediately how I could facilitate to do that better. So is it because that light bulb went off for you that you wanted that light bulb to go off for others? I knew it could go off. I don't, I don't want to force it on anybody. Sure. It won't go off for everybody. But I knew that I needed to be exposed to this part of it. And everybody's going to be different. Some people are just going to be competitive. And that will be enough to get that light bulb to go off. But for me, at the age that I was, 36, when I started photographing, I was like, well, if I can do it at 30. Like if it can go off for me at 36 and 37 this late in my life, who I think I know who I am and like I'm, you know, I'm an adult now. But like I just knew that that's going to be, there's, going to be more people like me. And that's the thing. What you feel, somebody else is feeling. What you experience, somebody else is going to experience differently, but very similar. And so I think that was it. Like that light bulb went off for me so late and I just realized like I just need to help other people potentially see it if they're looking for it or if they need it. And so if I can help tell those stories, whatever they are, and I try to find a wide range of stories, hopefully I can inspire other people to have those experiences that I had. And that's all it is. I'm just trying to share um, what I've gotten from running. And I think that's what any runner who posts their photos and posts their Instagram, you know, posts their runs on Instagram and talks on Strava or comments on Strava or whatever program you're using. I think that's what other people see too. That's why we share a lot of it because we, we ultimately just want other people to feel as good as we do for what we get from running. But I understand it. Again, it has to happen for you in your own way or when you need it. And it might be a time thing, it might be a lifestyle thing, it might be a geographic thing, um, but it, it, I, I know that it's not a forced thing. I just have to tell those stories as best I can in a way that allows people to connect, but doesn't tell them they need to connect, if that makes sense. No, makes a lot of sense. The running photography space is, I'll say somewhat crowded right now. There are a lot of photographers who are documenting various aspects of running, whether it's races, behind the scenes stuff, crew events in cities. There are other people who are just picking up nice cameras and taking photos of runners and putting them online. What are your thoughts on just the overall landscape right now of running photography? Is it a friendly place? Is it a competitive place? Is it a place where you all are supporting one another and lifting one another up to do better work? I'd love to dig into that a little bit. 
I, I, I think it's really interesting. And this weekend was really interesting because so many, everybody in running, like all of us. The number of large lenses that I saw out on the course was mind-blowing. Was way more than you would see at a normal race typically, right? Um, it's, I think it's a really interesting time because there's no handbook. And I mean, it's come up with some photographers. We've had conversations this weekend. You know, we're sharing ideas and picking brains of other people. And everybody, you know, some new people, I think, to the, to the game, to, to running photography, think that there's a there's a manual or there's a way to do it but the the reality is it's like running everybody has their own journey and their own way you have to like I don't live I live in Edmonton Alberta Canada which doesn't have too many major races and I have to travel a lot to get anywhere so you just have to like find your way I've been fortunate to be very well supported in this in this thing that we call running and from other run photographers and getting to meet other people but it, it's been tricky I'm not going to lie it's not very straightforward it's not easy because we think we see the the results if you look at my photos it looks like I know what I'm doing most of the time I do know what I'm doing most of the time but grand scheme of things you really don't every day is new every job is different every race is different every idea is different we're all just trying to figure it out as we go we're all just trying to figure it out as we go and so I think that's the the interesting part of it is that it's hard to if we're all just trying to figure it out and don't know like, oh, this is how you do it because it's not like a, a career that's very linear. No career is linear, but like this one's very unlinear because I think it's still very new because we have these access to cameras and gear now that it's easier to take pictures. And places to publish photos. And places to publish. Everybody's a publisher. Literally everybody can publish that you could you could tag somebody on Instagram and they could repost it and now you've got 10,000 people looking at your work that never would have saw it before. And like that never happened unless you were in a magazine. And to get into a magazine, you had to be a professional. Like it was a totally different path. If you grabbed a camera and got a good photo of something, it doesn't even have to be good sometimes. They'll still repost it. And then you're like, oh, well, somebody reposted it. I want to take more. So I think there's that, the access and the ability to share, I think is a lot of it. And that's really interesting to me because a lot of people think like, are you threatened by these people? And it's like, no, we've all got, there's so much room for all of us, but you just have to be genuine to it. As long as I'm not trying to be like anybody else, I'm okay with who I am and where I am. And you catch yourself like seeing other people's work and it's not jealousy, but you're like, oh yeah, like I want to be able to do that. But that's fuel for me. Like that's inspiration. It's like, I don't want to cause them, I was like, hey, how can that work for me? Because I know enough to know now that like it's not easy for them. It's not easy for any other photographer who out there is photographing. And I mean, that came up all weekend as we're talking. We end up just talking shop with with the other photographers and storytellers, and and it's nobody's got it figured out, and nobody's got it made, and there was no single journey. And so I think that's what's fun for me knowing that now is like, okay, so my journey is mine. And I can control it and I can get help and influence from other people. But ultimately, I'm, I'm driving this bus and I'm, I'm, and I'm picking where we're going with it. Whether it's photography or something else altogether, I think that same message is going to resonate with a lot of people listening to this. It resonates with me and a lot of things that I do, with ha which have nothing to do with picking up a camera. Exactly. And, 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 and it resonates with other things, other aspects of my life that I do. Like I said, I still build the internet. I'm, I'm a designer. I, I help small and medium-sized businesses with marketing and business strategy. And it's, I, use, I use the exact same analogies. It's the same metaphors throughout in all of those pursuits in how I get my work done and how I help others get their work done. And I think that's what's the, 
it, how deep it can resonate with anybody as long as you just sort of see those patterns. And, and I think those patterns are similar in everything we do. Last question. This is this weekend is the four-year anniversary of your foray into running and running photography. What does the next Olympic cycle look like for Jody Bailey? Oh, gosh, that is the most uh, exciting question ever because I think back four years and how this all started and where I am now and where running is now. And I can't wrap my head around it. Like I have to sit down and set some goals. There was a time where I'd write a goal on a whiteboard and literally hours later you'd get an email and I'd have to check that goal off. And so I'm at that point where I'm just like kind of running out of goals. And so I have to really sit down. I don't know if I have to sit down or if I just have to let it happen, but I, I trust the process. I trust that as long as I'm stay curious, uh, keep, feeding that curiosity in a genuine, positive way, not looking to take from anybody, but always looking to give and support. As that's my, my very narrow definition of like whether I should do something. Are you there to support them or are you there to take from them? And if it's there to take, then that's probably not a good fit. If you're there to give and support, that's probably a better fit. And so as long as I focus on that, the process, I know the the end result's gonna gonna come up. I'm not gonna. I don't have a goal of shooting the Olympics. I mean, as a sports photographer in early two thousand mid two thousands, that was that's a dream. That was kind of something. But I know enough now to know like that doesn't define me. Um, that's I don't need that credential to. And like this weekend, I didn't even get credentials because I didn't I didn't need it. I didn't think it was gonna help for the the stories that I was telling. And so I don't need those things. And I think that's maturity. So I'm I'm really grateful for for that and fortunate to be at that position in my life. And so for me, it's it's just about focusing on the process. And I have a really good understanding of why I do what I do. And I think that's the most important is drilling down to that. And for me, I know I can just trust that process and where it takes me over the next four years is really unlimited because I, I can't put a cap on it and I don't want to set goals because I honestly think I'm going to set them too low. I'll set the bar too low. I'd rather just stay focused on the process like my running and four more years from now, I'll be a seven-year runner and that's exciting. I'll be like 44 years old. I'll still be in that 40 to 45 age category. There's some Canadian national records. I have some big aspirations in running. <laughs> I love it. Because I trust the process and I know those goals, I'm not going to focus on them, but they're definitely going to be a possibility if I just continue to put in four years of work. And that's the same with my professional career. I don't, I don't want to pigeonhole myself. I don't want to limit myself. I have to keep my eyes open yet to, to let that curiosity still, something else could tug me in another direction. I've got a lot of skills now. Like I've, I've built up this arsenal of, of skills that I can use. So I really have to just keep an open mind, I think, over the next four years. But as long as I have that process, whatever it is I'm doing, it'll point me in the right direction. Well, I love this conversation. I love your work. I love your approach to life. I'm grateful for your friendship. Thank you for coming on the Morning Shake Up podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mario. This has been such a great weekend and week, and this is the perfect way to wrap it up. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. 
A big thank you to New Balance and the Atlanta Track Club for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. New Balance is offering a phenomenal deal to Morning Shakeout listeners right now. Use the promo code SHAKEOUT, that's all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com to save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Some restrictions do apply, but that should cover you for most products on their website. This year, July 4th is on a Saturday, which means you can't miss the AJC Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia. It's the largest 10K in the world and the biggest road race in the country. Lottery registration is open now and closes on March 31st with 60,000 runners and walkers, 200,000 spectators, costumes, music, and the coveted finisher shirt. This is one bucket list race you can't miss. Remember, lottery registration is open now and closes on March 31st. Register today at AJC.com slash Peachtree. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at The Morning Shakeout. John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.